Small Brains, Big Dreams is a podcast created by the Newborn Brain Society in partnership with the Canadian Premature Babies Foundation. The Newborn Brain Society is a nonprofit organization supporting a world in which all newborns have access to and receive the optimal brain care. We promote international, multidisciplinary collaboration, education, and innovation among clinicians, scientists, and parents. Preemie parent and journalist Jenna Morton is the host of this series, focusing on the role mentorship plays within this discipline. Welcome to this episode of Small Brains, Big Dreams, a podcast where we speak with some of the world's most respected neonatal and pediatric neurologists with a highlight on the role mentorship plays in their careers. Dr. Stephen Miller is the head of the Gary Hurwitz Center for Brain and Mental Health in the Division of Neurology at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Ontario the Bloorview Children's Hospital Foundation Chair in Pediatric Neuroscience, and a former Canada Research Chair in Neonatal Neuroscience. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm very excited to hear all about your career, and I'd like to start by starting at the beginning. What drew you into medicine and then into this field? So I had a surprising path to this field specifically. Uh, I knew from a fairly early age that I loved science and I also love engaging with people. And so medicine seemed like a fairly natural choice. And as I went through my medical career, I was originally drawn to issues of global health. Uh, you know, in that area, it seemed like addressing issues of the social determinants of health and social disparities seemed paramount. And that's what I was most most drawn to. Through medical school, I had some uh, fantastic supervisors and mentors in that area, including a an adult neurologist who from McGill was doing work in Ethiopia and really trying to bring advances in neurology to that to that community through uh, through him as an early career mentor i was introduced to a project in ghana where i set out to do a medical elective there studying the role of medical education at the time of the hiv pandemic and so when i got there i had my first real interaction almost fortuitously to pediatrics in that setting that was dominated by issues of the brain. So most of our interactions in an inland hospital in Ghana were focused on treating children who were coming from often long distances in coma. While I was training as a medical student at McGill, we had fantastic exposure to neurology and the neurosciences, being the home of the Montreal Neurological Institute. I hadn't appreciated that there was a career path for pediatric neurologists until that time. So when I came back to Montreal and got in touch with my adult neurology mentor, he said, of course, there are neurologists who look after children. And he introduced me to Michael Chabelle, who is a pediatric neurologist at the Montreal Children's Hospital, who since uh, has, is still a career mentor to me. And Michael introduced me to Gordon Waters, uh, one of the founders of the entire discipline of pediatric neurology and certainly at the forefront of Canadian pediatric neurology. And I was able to do a very quickly arrange an elective at the Montreal Children's Hospital 
and was just taken by the specialty, really inspired by Dr. Waters' approach to families and getting back to where I started in medical school. This, you know, a field that was so, uh, so embedded in the sciences, in this case, neurosciences, but also by Gordon's example of engaging with patients and families. I have very vivid memories of how he approached children and examined them and also how he spoke with families and engaged with them. And so I very quickly changed my career path and, and applied for a pediatric neurology residency at the Montreal Children's Hospital. And that's where I spent the next five years training. It must feel very exciting to be so close to people who are so instrumental in the field that you then become immersed in. Jenna, that's a great question because, or a great point, because I, I don't know that that's something that I appreciated at the time. I mean, one of the lessons in mentorship that I took from a very early, very early stage of training is uh, these were individuals, the entire Montreal Children's Hospital team that approached their careers with such humility and treated their trainees as people really look after their success. You know, I remember our journal clubs were often preceded by table hockey games. Um, They knew my family, I knew their family, and uh, I still know their families, and it's fantastic to watch their children now uh, establish their careers. And that's something that at the time I was in it, uh, I think I really took for granted. Uh, and now looking back, I think, wow, you know, how lucky was I to be able to train with these people? And more than that, how lucky was I to have them pay attention to me as a person? And so that's something that I hope to bring forward as a, as a mentor myself. I think a lot of us have those moments where we look back and realize what we didn't know at the time. And I think that's just one of those life skills that as a mentor, you, you try to pass on and you hope that it, it goes through, but it's probably going to be a while before people realize that. Can you talk a little bit more about your approach to mentorship and what role that plays in your career now? Let me continue on with the career path, because I think this is what really gave me my mentorship aspirations. So through the mentors that I had at the Montreal Children's Hospital, I was really fortunate to meet Donna Ferreira in San Francisco, who is one of the pioneers in neonatal neurology and neonatal neuroscience. And uh, meeting her was just inspirational. So during a visiting lectureship by Dr. Joe Volpe, who, you know, another founder of our field, uh, wrote the textbook Neurology of the Newborn. That was the first time that I really saw this amazing intertwining of cutting edge science and direct clinical care. And I thought here was a field that was going to transform over the next decade. And I don't think that that was an exaggeration, uh, even at the time. So with an interest in neonatal neurology, I got to meet Donna, who really distinguished herself to me as a mentor and uh, focused not only on teaching neonatal neurology, but also on fostering the success of everyone around her. And I would say really was an exemplar of generosity in in academic healthcare. So Donna would always say that your role as a, as a leader in leader in healthcare, you know, what 
doesn't mean the title you have. You know, as a resident or as a fellow, you're leading, whether it's students or in projects, right, is to cheer people along and to define your success by the success of the people around you. And uh, those are the lessons that I hope to bring forward. I hope that I'm bringing forward in my own career as a, as a mentor. I'm wondering about, about that relationship, the mentor-mentee. For someone who's just kind of starting out in the field, how do they, how do they have that moment? How do they find you? How do they find their Donna? Their, how do you give advice to someone who's looking for their mentor? So it's interesting to see how our approach to mentorship has really evolved over time. You know, I think back to how I got connected with my mentors and there, there was a lot of good luck, I, I would say. Now, I think when I speak to them, they say, well, there might have been good luck, but you had to be open to the mentorship to begin with. So the first thing I, I when I speak to people, not just earlier in their careers, but across any career stage, because I think mentorship, the need for mentorship and the benefits of mentorship doesn't end there. You know, I, I might be a full professor, but I remain privileged and fortunate to have a fantastic team of mentors around. So one is to be open to mentorship and to be comfortable, uh, maybe going outside your initial comfort zone, right? To think about being open to mentors that might be outside of your primary discipline and to not confuse a supervision with mentorship. And so in that supervisor trainee relationship, there's, there are certain expectations that a supervisor has of the trainee and the trainee might have of the supervisor and that's critical for their training progress. In my view, what distinguishes a mentor is having someone that's looking out for your holistic well-being in whatever is important to you at that phase of your life. And so it's key to find mentors. What has been very positive to see over the last decade is a shift towards more deliberate approaches to helping people find mentors. So to make it less about chance and more about ensuring, you know, more equitable opportunity to meet potential mentors and find that right relationship. So I can give you an example of my own division. We aim to ensure that all of our faculty at every career stage has at least one mentor that has some knowledge or content expertise, you know, has some skills in that specific area. But we also try to pair people with a career trajectory mentor, someone who would deliberately look out for their career path. Both as mentors aren't supervisors. They should be looking after the person's holistic well-being. But we've been deliberate in trying to help people foster these links. And because this is about people, it's also about finding the right fit. And so it sometimes takes some time to help people find their mentors. So uh, I started by saying that we've seen this shift to more deliberate approaches to mentorship, but we've also recognized the need to reframe mentorship as a one-on-one -on -one relationship and think more about a mentorship team. I'm wondering with such a, a focus on creating these mentorship opportunities and relationships, how are you seeing that play out? in terms of what's happening in clinical work and in research? Yeah, so, you know, if I reflect on my own career path in neonatal neurology, 
I, I, you know, I just have to open up the grants that I had written to get to do a fellowship with Donna at UCSF. We were very much focused on the diagnostics of brain injury. So did something happen to the developing brain? And if it did, what does it mean for the child? And how can we appropriately counsel families? If we fast forward now, not even 20 years, right? Our focus is now about how do we, uh, how do we prevent brain injury? How do we promote optimal brain development? How do we help the brain to heal? These questions would have been science fiction uh, not all that long ago. And to think that this is a shift that's occurred over, uh, over my career has simply been incredible. And I think a lot of that shift has been fostered by the generosity of the generations ahead through their mentorship, helping people have space to discover new things and go down new paths rather than um, thinking, you know, I guess approaching things with the ability that we have so much left to learn about the brain. And the best way to do that is gonna to be to foster the success of the next generation. Um, Michael, Gordon, Donna, and the other mentors that I've really been privileged to work with, I, I think have always expressed, expressed that. And I think that's been critical to the advances in our field. When I speak to young people today, not just my mentees, but if I get to go to my kid's school to talk about the brain, what strikes me is the technologies that we have available today to understand the brain were nothing like what we had 20 years ago. And so the opportunities for transformative discovery in 2021 are unparalleled. So like what an amazing time to focus your energies on supporting the developing brain. Our thinking has changed. The treatment opportunities have changed, but also our, the research capabilities that we have are so totally different. And so there's no question in my mind that what's discovered by my trainees will be so much more impactful than any of the discoveries that I've had the chance to contribute to. So, to the potential mentors that might be listening to the podcast, uh, what a rewarding aspect of a career to get involved in, in fostering that next generation to advance the field exponentially, just as we've been a part of. So exciting to hear you talk about that potential that exists on the horizon. I'm wondering, you know, what what role do you see yourself playing in championing that cause, you know, you've kind of touched on it there, you know, you, you try to instill this in people that this is just this incredible time, but what, what else is happening kind of, you know, concretely to, to move this forward and to, to have these possibilities. When I started training, I was working on brain imaging studies and to come back to the mentorship team, it wasn't just with Donna, Jim Barkovich, uh, a leader in pediatric neuroradiology, Dan Vigneron, MR spectroscopist, uh, were also key, key mentors. And that we were looking at imaging studies of babies as part of a much larger neonatal neuroscience initiative, the Neonatal Brain Disorder Center that was led by Donna, that 
largely had a basic science focus, right? Trying to understand the molecular pathways for brain injury to identify targets to prevent brain injury or to eventually to promote brain repair. Early in my fellowship, I had the chance to work with Shannon Hamrick, who's a neonatologist now at Emory. She was a neonatal neurology fellow coming at this from neonatology. And there was a key lesson at that the most exciting discoveries in our field in child health, I would say, are happening at the intersection of our disciplines. So being able to look at something from a neurology perspective and then from a newborn medicine perspective was really important. Now, when I started my work, the focus was around periventricular leukomalacia, a significant form of brain injury that as a neurologist was something that we recognized in the neurology clinic as being a critical cause of cerebral palsy, cognitive concerns and uh, visual concerns. So here I was early in my career, had a grant to study periventricular leukomalacia, and we were going to do this by imaging to try to understand how this pattern of brain injury led to these changes in a child's development. And I think after we had uh, done MRI scans in about 100 babies, and a real shout out of thanks to the families who participate in these studies in really stressful periods in their, time, in their lives, we didn't see any babies with PVL. And I thought, oh my, right here I was <laughs> with a grant to study this condition that has gone away. So uh, working with Shannon, we connected with uh, the ultrasonographers at UCSF. And of course, with all, you know, Donna and Jim and Dan um, and the team that was there, there was a group of ultrasonographers that had been very consistent at UCSF. I mean, I think I'm one of the few exceptions of people who are in San Francisco and then leave. So they had been doing ultrasounds the same way with the same type of protocol over a long period of time. And so we thought we, it, that gave us a chance to look at what was happening to PVL. Maybe it was just that these families were choosing not to have MRI scans. Over the period of through the 90s into the 2000s, the one thing that had changed is that ultrasound technology got much better. So you would have expected that we should have picked up even more periventricular leukomalacia over time. In fact, we saw the incidence of periventricular leukomalacia drop tenfold from about 2% of babies that were born 24 to 32 weeks gestation to 0.2%. Like a tenfold decline in the most serious form of brain injury in babies born preterm was, I don't even think there were you know, potential drug targets in the lab that were being tested that you would expect to bring to the neonatal intensive care unit and have a tenfold decline in brain injury. So together with Shannon, we went, we were both training in clinical research methods at the time. So we, we roped in a fantastic biostatistician, David Glidden, who helped us model this change over time and link the change to a more general use of mechanical ventilation. And uh, this comes back to some of my earlier comments about just trying to pay attention to where we are in the history of things. So around the 90s, I'll get the year wrong if I commit to one, the Japanese neonatologists recognized that if we were hyperventilating, 
giving babies too much ventilation. Uh, not only was that bad for the lungs, but it constricted the vessels in the brain. And that was, the, in their view, a key cause of periventricular leukoplasia. In North America, the focus was really at the time on lung health. And so we saw this shift towards a lot of ventilation to trying to minimize ventilation. And it was that change in ventilation strategy that was really a powerful predictor of this decline in PVL. This issue wasn't just at UCSF. Our colleagues in the Netherlands, Linda DeVries and her team had shown a similar decline. And for families, even more important, that was coupled with a decline in cerebral palsy. So this isn't just about imaging. There was a real shift and that change happened because of a clinical care strategy that had evolved over time. And that to me was so exciting to suggest that while we wait for all these new molecules in the basic science lab to come to fruition, maybe there are things that we could do today in how we care for babies in the intensive care unit that would support better outcomes, either to, either to prevent brain injury or also to promote the development of the brain. As we look, started to look at this issue of how could we support the developing brain with the tools that we have at hand in the intensive care unit. You know, I, I referenced that importance of discoveries at the intersection of our specialties earlier. And that has been one of the other key joys of mentorship is being able to uh, meet trainees, uh, try to train trainees, uh, but be a part of their development from other specialties. And they have brought in totally new perspectives on these ideas, whether they're MR physicists who are trying to understand better how we look at the brain, neonatologists who understand uh, lung health, you know, in a way that I don't as a neurologist, or nutrition, again, not a typical topic in neurology school. And that happens at the trainee level. It also happens at the faculty level. So when I moved from San Francisco to Vancouver and had the privilege to meet Ruth Grunau, a developmental psychologist who has spent her career trying to understand the role of pain in preterm babies on the developing brain and showing that the greater the exposure to pain, the greater the behavior concerns or the cognitive concerns that the family and child would have later in life, even after you account for how ill the child was, started to get us to ask, well, if there's something different in a child's behavior or cognition, there has to be something different in the brain. So how could we start to examine this using these new tools with brain imaging? And that work has really been, uh, has really advanced with really innovative, creative trainees that we've had the opportunity to mentor uh, mostly together. And so, you know, coming back to this mentorship team idea of having people from different perspectives, helping to support uh, people earlier in their careers to ask even more innovative questions uh, has been really exciting. So in a career that started on, you know, a very specific form of brain injury, periventricular leukomalacia, the entire focus of our lab now is on this importance of the everyday. So how is it that the everyday experience that a baby has in the intensive care unit and now at home influences this really incredible period of brain development?
And uh, as a neurologist, uh, my view is the only way to address those questions is by bringing different disciplines together. And what better way than by supporting bright young people to bring those perspectives together? It sounds like just the most fascinating model that every discipline should be following. (laughs) You can see that there's so much value in recognizing that everyone's not working on their own, that everything does work together. It's been, it's been so personally rewarding that it's hard for me not to um, have a big smile when I talk about this. And that view has really permeated uh, other approaches that go beyond the neonatal neurosciences lab. I can give you one other example of uh, through the prior Fraser Mustard Institute of Human Development at the University of Toronto, I had the good fortune to meet Barbara Fallon, a professor of social work who focuses on uh, the child welfare. And uh, she taught me how, if you look at a child's development, the responsibility for development societally falls across multiple government areas, health, child use services, education. Uh, What became apparent is that the different ministries look at different literatures. Not surprisingly, the, you know, the Ministry of Health looks at the health literature. The Minister of Education is going to look at the education literature. And so we set out to join forces to develop a policy bench for evidence synthesis so that we could start to bring together these disparate literatures to have a more holistic view of what's contributing to child development. And it's been another wonderful platform to see young people engage in and start to be comfortable to look outside how we think about things. I I learn, you know, when I interact with Barbara, I learn with every interaction because she's approaching the very similar issues with her lens, the lens that she developed through years of uh, research in social work. And, you know, I might bring a neuroscience or a, or a medical lens to things. And it's been really eye-opening to see the power of being able to look at a problem through these different lenses and think more deeply about the various dimensions and potentials for solutions. So we now have structures in place, whether through the policy bench or now through the Gary Hervitt Center for Brain and Mental Health at SickKids, where we've developed structures to help trainees train outside of their primary discipline. And their success in what's happened after their training has really been uh, inspiring. I'd say not just to me, but to any of the mentors that have been involved with them. That's fascinating and so fantastic to hear and to think of you know, as you talked about the changes that have come through in your field over your career so far, the changes that we might hope to see in broader policy and, and things going forward when more people understand all these, these interactions. I hope so. Now, um, you introduce yourself um, sharing some of your experience and, and uh, with healthcare and the NICU and as a, and as a mom. You know, I have my experience as a dad. And the other big shift that 
we've seen just in the last few years that I think is just as impactful as this interdisciplinary lens is this move towards patient-oriented research of authentic engagement of patients, youth, families in the research process outside of participating in research studies. So when I say authentic engagement, I don't mean informed consent for a study and participating in the study. That is critically important. And to any family listening today, um, thank you so much, uh, I'd say on behalf of our entire community for your participation in these studies that have led these tremendous advances in the care of babies over the last years. Patient-oriented research is trying to push that a step further to say, how can we more effectively engage with patients and families at the first stages of the research process so that we understand the questions that matter most to you, to ask questions that are not only more relevant, but also more impactful. So another part of my role is as a co-lead of Childbright, a patient-oriented research network across Canada that's been leading 13 clinical studies to improve the lives and well-being of children with brain-based developmental disabilities and their families, including babies born preterm, children born preterm, and their families. And as I think about my role as a healthcare provider, uh, I'm often reminded in the clinic to be sure to ask families how we can help beyond what might've been the reason for referral or the reason for follow-up, because there are often things that we could do to be supportive that go beyond a, you know, renewing a prescription. And sometimes it's just a question of listening. And yet, until I started engaging in Childbright, I look back at my career and I don't think that I had ever asked a family, what should our next research aims be? You know, I'm thinking of writing a grant, but what should we address? Through Childbright and interactions with parent leaders like Fabiana Bacini from Canadian Preterms Baby Foundation, I've really begun to appreciate the importance, the essential need to more effectively engage with the children, youth, and families that we're trying to support. Yeah, I think it's surprising how long it's taken us all to realize some of the voices that we haven't been asking for in the things that we do. And I think it's going to make an incredible difference in the field that more and more clinicians and researchers are thinking the way you are. It's been so exciting. So on the one hand, I could look back and say, how come it took me so long to get to this? <laughs> on the other hand, instead of looking back with regret, I think it's time to look forward. And uh, Frank Gavin, uh, who was our citizen engagement leader, of Childbright when we first started the network, it coined the term that it's time to go from network to movement. And I'm hoping this really is now a movement that will be unstoppable, that it becomes expected that there is engagement with patients, you know, in our setting, children, youth, and families. But let me bring it back to mentorship because we have so much to learn from the families that we're interacting with that this is now becoming a deliberate part of our mentorship strategies to help our trainees not only appreciate the role for patient-oriented research, 
but to start to engage with parents or youth as mentors in their own career development so that it becomes even more tightly embedded going beyond a grant, but to how they approach their careers over time. And another shout out of thanks to the parents who have been so generous in their time to help mentor child health researchers. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. <laughs> it's fantastic. Exciting, you know, exciting times. And I, I don't, you know, I want to be, I think, respectful and honest that this is early in the journey. So uh, this isn't work that's finished. This is work that's starting. And if you are early, if you're listening, not just early, at any phase of your child health career, whether as a researcher or as a clinician, this is the time to get engaged with patient-oriented research and to learn from our patients and their families, and also to learn at how this is being implemented differently across different countries. I, I don't think that there's a single formula yet about how to do this well and authentically and as impactfully as possible. And so this is at a time of key learning and what a great time to get engaged. I think this has been a fantastic discussion filled with so many things. Is there anything else that you want to leave people listening to this with today? I, I would just close by emphasizing uh, that not only have I been so fortunate to have wonderful mentors, but that being a mentor has really been such a joy of my own career. And regardless of how you come to this podcast, as a parent, as a researcher, as a clinician, and whatever your discipline, I, I could only expect that your engagement in mentorship would be as rewarding and as fulfilling as mine has been. So Jenna, thanks so much for having me. And thank you for bringing up such a, such an important topic in, in mentorship. Well, thank you so much for your time. My guest on this episode of Small Brains, Big Dreams was Dr. Stephen Miller. Dr. Miller is head of neurology at the Gary Herbert Center for Brain and Mental Health at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children and co-director of Child Bright, a national network that champions patient-oriented research in improving outcomes for children with brain-based developmental disabilities. Small Brains, Big Dreams is presented by the Newborn Brain Society in collaboration with the Canadian Premature Babies Foundation. Connect with us at newbornbrainsociety.org, on Facebook at Newborn Brain Society and Twitter at Newborn Brains. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe.